Christian faith. I am your host, Harold Felder, and today the topic is the 12 points that prove that Christianity is true. And with me, I have a special guest, Lanny Wilson. Let me tell you a little bit about Lanny. Lanny is a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's pursuing a Master's of Arts in Apologetics with a concentration in philosophy. He's taught the 12 points at Southern Evangelical Church Biblical Institute, and he's now currently teaching a class in basic Bible doctrine and theology also at Southern Evangelical Church. So, Lanny, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's glad to be back. Did I leave anything out? No, that's pretty much it. Well, I, uh, I think I left something out. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh conference, I guess. Your wife. See, oh, I have wife. to help you guys. Sometimes you guys, yeah. I, if it wasn't for me, what would y'all do? Uh, we would fall on our face. Yes, you go. there you yeah. go. So, so, Lanny, is there something you want to say? Uh, my wife is great. Okay. <laughs> All right. okay. okay. But I do okay. want to say that Lanny, Lanny has helped me a lot. Get through, he helped me get through school, basically. And Lanny is one of my favorite people. So, Lanny, yeah. I'm just really glad to have you on the show. Lanny's a very bright guy. And actually, Lanny has more stuff in his biography, but he wants to be very, what's the word? Uh, uh, he said he didn't want to appear to come off as being as being too cocky yeah. or something like that. So he, yeah. he told me to keep down his biography, but he's done a lot more <laughs> stuff, a lot more interesting stuff. But I'm going to respect his wishes, and I'm not going to get into that. So then, right. Lana, we're going to go ahead and get into the topic then. Okay. The 12 Great. points to prove Christianity is true. All right. Who developed the 12 points to prove Christianity is true? Well, uh, the modern form of what we're going to be discussing is really developed by uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, but it's really born more out of the tradition, the classical apologetics tradition that goes all the way back through the uh, Christian centuries. I mean, so it just, it's commonly called two-step apologetics or even three-step. It just centers on the fact that what you want to do first is establish that there is a God and then show Christianity is true. Uh, because claims like Jesus is the Son of God or the Bible is the Word of God all depend on one important uh, fact. Is there or is there not a God? So you have to establish whether there is a God or not first before even talking about Christianity at all. Now, so, most of my guests would know, but just in case someone is tuning in for the first time, okay. you use that word apologetics. Explain what that means. Uh, it just means defense. Uh, you have different types of types of apologetics. Christian apologetics is just giving a reason, uh, reason defense of Christianity. And that's pretty much it, uh, a reason for the hope that's within. But you have political apologists, you have more, uh, Mormon apologists, Muslim apologists. It's just a generic term, just means defense or reason. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that even corporations are calling uh, some of their positions apologists, like uh, uh, someone from Microsoft may call themselves an apologist. They may actually have the title apologist, Microsoft yeah. apologist, which means they go out and defend Microsoft. Right, But yeah. we're Christian apologists, and that's what... We do, Christianity. and yeah. that's what this show is about. And that's what the Twelve Points is about. Yeah, you're not saying you're sorry for anything. We're yeah, not which apologizing is a for anything. Common joke, but yeah, right. yeah, you're We're not, not saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, you know. But no, it's not that at all. It just me, just means defense. Yeah. Right, right. So, what is the objective of the Twelve Points? The objective of the Twelve Points is actually just to show a rational reason to believe that Christianity is true, or whatever position 
you're doing, but Christian apologetics is to show uh, ultimately that uh, Jesus is the Son of God, the Bible is the Word of God, and anything opposed to it is false. That is bottom line. Uh, what the whole apologetic approach gets to is just to show that Christianity is rational, it is reasonable, and you have good reason, good evidence to uh, have faith in Christ. Now this is very important because when I became a Christian, I did research because I, I, it was an emotional experience for me. So I did research and it was doing my research that I realized that Christianity actually had evidence for it that actually made sense. Now I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christian because of apologetics. Well, I didn't become a Christian because of apologetics, but mm -hmm. I, I remained a Christian because of, because of apologetics. Because if it wasn't rational, I would have thrown it away. Because right. I think that's what we're called to do. You know, we're rational beings. God made us rational beings. Right. So we should be able to defend our faith. We should be able to substantiate our faith. Right. Now, yeah, I mean, your uh, your case is pretty common. Most people are not brought to Christianity from apologetics, usually uh, substantiate. But there are many that were brought to Christianity through apologetics. Right. Josh McDowell, Frank Morrison, or two. Uh, C.S. Lewis would be a you know probably one of the more uh, uh, incredible standouts that apologetics did uh, affect. It does increase your faith. It does sustain yes. your faith uh, and build it up. But it also does turn the hearts of skeptics, agnostics, and uh, unbelievers. Yes. And so it, it serves two different purposes. One is to bring in those from outside Christian, Christendom. And the other is to uh, support the faith and reinforce the faith of those that are in Christendom. So it has two purposes. It's not exclusive one way or the other. Right. Okay, now what I want to do is I want you to list just what the 12 points are. And then we're going to go back through each one in more detail. Okay. Well, the points are listed. There's 12 of them, obviously. The first one is foundational. It's just truth about reality is knowable. The second one is the opposite of true is false. The third one establishes that there is a theistic God. The fourth one says that if uh, there is a God, then miracles are possible. The fifth says that miracles can be used as confirmation of a message from God. The sixth one establishes that the New Testament is historically reliable. The seventh, that Jesus is uh, claimed to be the, uh, the Son of God in the New Testament. Eighth is that he proved to be the Son of God in the New Testament through uh, miracles, prophecy, and his resurrection. Uh, the ninth one is the conclusion that, therefore, Jesus is God. Tenth, Jesus claimed that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. The eleventh says, since Jesus is God, whatever he says is true. And since he claimed the Bible is the Word of God, number 12, whatever he says is true, therefore the Bible is the Word of God, anything opposed to it is false. All right. So that's, in a nutshell, moves you from skepticism, agnosticism, all the way through the truth of Christianity. Now each one of those do have to be instantiated to, uh, to hold up. Yeah, and I've underst I understand that this has been very effective around the country, that Dr. Geisler and, uh, and uh, some other people, Frank Turk, yeah. instance, go around the country and they give this, and, and it's uh, great results. Yeah, they, they do conferences on this topic, and uh, they've gotten some great results, great feedback. Uh, it's something that the church has really uh, been slack on, is in training a lot of those that are in uh, the laity on how to witness, how to uh, uh, sustain your faith, how to wit uh, to know Christian doctrine, to know apologetics. The church by and large has failed at that, but is getting better and getting stronger and uh, getting great feedback from uh, those that are in the church. Okay, let's go through them one at a time. All right. Truth about reality is knowable. Correct. That's pretty much it. It's undeniable <laughs> that, there, that truth is knowable. Now, a lot of times we end up doing things where we confuse what truth is and what truth is not. We end up confusing things like definitions of truth for tests for truth. 
for example, a couple of things that truth is not, it, even though it's a popular one, is truth is not what works. And that comes out of classic American philosophy pragmatism. Well, if it works, it must be true. No, it just gets it backwards. Whatever's true will work, but just because something works doesn't make it true. For example, lies will work, yeah. usually, but that doesn't make them true. Right. So that's the first one. Another one that uh, truth is not is truth is not that which coheres. Uh, they, a lot mean? of people uh, stick together. If you have a comprehensive set, uh, let's say of coherent things like if you have a uh, people that are, let's say, in court and they've come together to uh, make a lie about something, let's say stealing in a store, and you have two or three people that are, you know, they have a very complete set of lies, you know, the stories cohere, they go together, they cor corroborate each other, but they still stole something. They're lying about it. Doesn't make it true, but the the words they say, the sentences they say, may very well be coherent. You can even make singular statements. For example, uh, all wives are married women. Now, that statement coheres. It seems to be true, but there's no content to it, because what remains to be seen is, are there any women that are wives? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's kind of different. And you can even have a whole set of comprehensive beliefs, let's say like uh, Hinduism. Uh, you know, it's a very comprehensive set. It's cohesive, yeah. but right. that doesn't make it true. Yeah. And so it doesn't really matter if individual statements come together to fit. Do they fit with the broader picture? It's kind of like if you have a huge web of things, the web needs to be connected to something. If you just have a spider web that's out there, not connected to anything, what is it? Right. Well, it can't be true because it's got to be grounded to something. Right. It doesn't matter if the web coheres to itself, it's got to be grounded in something larger. Another thing too is that truth is not that which is intended. A lot of people say, well, I meant to be, uh, you know, I, I was sincere in what I was doing. You yeah. know, I yeah. meant to do this. Well, that's great, but you didn't. You know, a lot of sincere uh, intentions are often wrong. You know, if you have a, uh, a nurse uh, who accidentally puts, uh, let's say, like cyanide or hydro, uh, hydrochlorine in like a baby's eyes, the child goes blind. Now, the nurse may sincerely not meant to do that or intended to do something else, but it is true that they did something horrible and the baby went blind. So truth isn't that which is intended either. Uh, and last but not least, truth is not what feels good. <laughs> this is hard for our culture, but mm -hmm. truth is not that which feels good. Often what feels good is very wrong. For example, you may get angry and it feels very good to kill somebody. It's very wrong to kill people no matter how good it feels at that particular moment. But Lanny, when we watch TV, I mean, they always say, follow your heart. The heart never lies. You're saying that that's, that's wrong? Absolutely. Okay. The heart right. is deceitfully what, wicked what, above all else. Exactly. And say that again. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. That's, Who that's can great. know it? That's great because we hear, you know, that's supposed to be so noble. Just follow your heart. Yeah, your yeah. heart can be completely wrong. Your heart can tell you to do something that you know is wrong. Yeah. But just because it's your heart, somehow that makes it okay? I don't think so. Yeah, my heart's led me away a couple times. Yeah. But now we've gone through what, what is not true. We also have to establish what is true. Well, you know, I've gone through all these different ways to say what truth isn't. Well, what is it? Well, what it is, is that which corresponds to reality. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means uh, saying it like it is. If I say that there's a table here, 
that statement is true if and only if there actually is a table right here. Right. If I say your pen is uh, gold, it is true if and only if your pen actually is gold. Right. So, uh, like I said, the test for truth would be the things that we were mentioned earlier. For example, does it work? If something doesn't work, it very well may or may not be true. It doesn't really tell us anything. If, however, a statement does not cohere, we know it's wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean something is true if it does cohere, but if it doesn't cohere, for example, if I say, I cannot speak a word of English. You know, wait a minute, the light bulb goes off. Wait a minute, didn't you just say that yeah. in English? Yeah. Well, yes, I did, <laughs> you know, right, but right. I can't speak a word in English. No, something's not right there. Right. You know, we also say the same thing for things like uh, a common statement in our culture is uh, uh, there is no truth. Wait a minute. Yeah. If that statement is true, then it defeats itself. Right. A self-defeating statement. So, right. uh, some people call it the roadrunner tactic. Yeah. It's really just self-defeating. If you take a statement and it cannot uh, stand up to its own criteria, it's self-defeating. Yeah. And there's a lot of those out in our culture. We might get to those later. Now that's the first one. The second one. Now this seems so simple. Yes. The opposite of true is false. Yeah, this right here, the reason that this has to be entered in is because you have pluralism out there. And pluralism says, no, all things are true. All religions are true. Everything, you know, no, nobody's wrong. Well, that's kind of interesting because we expect truth in different areas of our life. Yeah. For example, you go to the doctor. Do you want him to tell you if you're sick or not? Well, it's only true for you. Imagine trying to do this at your bank. I'd just like to see how much money is in my account. Well, your account says that you have negative $275. No, 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 that's just true for you. Right, right. For me, I have 275000 Yeah, right. it doesn't work. Yeah, try that with the IRS, see what happens. It just, it's absurd. You know, no, the yeah. case is whatever is true, then it, it automatically excludes its opposite. In yeah. this case right here, how do we know five is the wrong answer to two plus two? Well, because we know the answer is four, right? Okay, right. well guess what? How intolerant is it of mathematicians say two plus two equals four? That excludes an infinite number of numbers. How intolerant? Isn't it interesting that we only do that when it comes to morality? Uh, we do that with only morality and religion. Yeah. We demand truth in every other area of our lives. We want pilots that are uh, well-trained and sober. We want, uh, like I said, we want our loved ones to be faithful to us. We want all these things only in those areas. But hey, whenever it comes to uh, religion and morality, no, whatever, whatever's just true for you is true for you. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, who, who am I to, to judge? Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. So there, <laughs> there's the first one. The first two. Now, Most people accept those. Yeah. Now here's the big one. Okay, so you've proven that truth about reality is knowable. Point one, the opposite of true is false. Point two, three, this is a big one. Yeah. It is true that the theistic God exists. Right. Yeah, and this right here does take a little while to go through. But Explain it's theistic so first. Theistic just, there's different worldviews. And a theistic means that there is a being that is outside the universe that created the universe and sustains the universe. This is different from atheism, which says there is no being outside the universe. And it's different from pantheism, which says that God is the universe. So those right there are the three main worldviews. And a theistic God, like I said, is a being that is outside the universe but sustains the universe, which is different, obviously, than atheism or pantheism. So, but to establish this, there's three different main arguments. One is, and these are big words, the cosmological argument, 
which basically argues from the existence of the universe to a cause of the universe. You have what's called the teleological argument, which deals with design in the universe. And if there's design in the universe, there must be a designer. And then the third one is the moral argument, which says that if there's a moral law, all laws have a lawgiver, therefore there's an objective moral lawgiver. Those are the three main arguments, and if those arguments hold and are true, then that gives evidence of a theistic God, which would be, the, from that point on, then only three uh, religious beliefs could even possibly be true. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Because all other beliefs, belief systems, are not theistic. They're either atheistic of some sort, or pantheistic, polytheistic. You just go on down the list. But uh, that's the importance of the theistic God. Okay. All right, for the cosmological argument, put in logical form, it's very simple. It just says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And it's based in the principle of causality, which says nothing can, can't come from nothing. Uh, something can't come from nothing. Right. Nothing comes from nothing. Julie Andrews got it right in Sound of Music. Yeah. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Yeah. Well, yeah. Imagine, you know, we're not surprised that there's not a Bengal tiger just poof, poofing out of experience right here on, on the set because where would it come from? You know, it doesn't just pop into existence. These things just don't happen. So the first premise is generally well accepted. Yeah, nothing can't cause anything. There's nothing there to do the causing. And you can have a lot of fun with nothing. Nothing doesn't exist. Nothing ever could. Uh, so you can have a lot of fun with that. But the real uh, premise to defend is the second one, that the universe began to exist. And there's five lines of evidence, uh, really six, that show that the universe began to exist. And the acronym that uh, Geisler and Turek use and, and others is called SURGE. And the S stands for the second law of thermodynamics. Basically says that the amount of usable energy in the universe is running down. If I took a flashlight, turned it on, put it on the table, what would eventually happen? Go out. Yeah, the light bulb goes out. If I wind up a little toy, eventually the little spring in it wears out and would have to be wound again. And the universe is kind of the same way. Once we run out of hydrogen atoms, then the universe dies. It runs out of energy. But if you're running out of energy, then that means that you had to have an initial amount of energy to begin with. If the gas tank is getting empty, that means that one time the gas tank had to be full. So this right here lends evidence that the universe began to exist because if it was infinite, we wouldn't be running out of energy. An infinite gas tank never runs out. An infinite battery never goes out, but our universe is wearing down and running down. The second line is called is is a U of surge, and it deals with the universe expansion. And what happened was is uh, Hubble noticed that whenever he looked out into the telescope of the distant galaxies, or whatever, that they were moving onto the red spectrum. It's called the red shift, and that means that the galaxies were moving further away. And this piece of evidence showed uh, proved uh, Einstein that the universe was expanding. He used to hold that the universe was eternal. After Hubble showed him this, he changed his views. No, the universe began to exist. Third line of evidence, the radiation echo from the Big Bang, Penzias and Wilson, uh, they were working on this uh, antenna and everywhere they pointed it, they kept getting static. And through the models, they discovered that, and they ended up winning a Nobel Prize on this discovery, was they discovered the afterglow, the static left over from a great explosion. 
Well, if that's the case, then there, there would be what the Big Bang model uh, predicted, and therefore, you know, this right here was corroborating evidence of the Big Bang and thus the beginning of the universe. Uh, back in the early 90s, the COBE satellite discovered uh, the background cosmic radiation. Um, and recently, actually only a couple years ago, the WMAP uh, fine-tuned it a lot, and we can actually see what the universe looked like about 130 uh, years, 130,000 years into its first into its in existence. Yeah. So we can see the universe as an infant, you know, just looking at this cosmic background uh, radiation. And these right here is the G in a surge, great galaxy seeds. And you can actually see the hot spots and cool spots. And it's so important because if it was just even, we wouldn't have galaxies form. And so this right here gave evidence that the universe began to exist. Einstein's theory of general relativity demands a beginning of the universe. This is a very uh, well-developed uh, field within physics, and his general relativity has been confirmed again and again and again, and it demands a beginning of the universe. The sixth line deals with uh, the fact that you can't have an infinite number of things. And you and I were talking about this before the show, so uh, yeah, we have, I hope yeah. we have a few minutes because this right here is just fascinating. It's commonly called the Kalam argument. Okay. Just a couple minutes. Just we're, a couple we're, minutes. We're, we're uh, almost out of time. Okay. <laughs> we're not almost out of time, but we're, oh, okay. This is, I know this is very involved and, you know, we need five shows. Need five shows. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right. I'll, I'll do this one rather quick. Okay. Now, you can't have an actual infinite number of things. You can have a potential infinite number of things. All right. Now, what do I mean by those two different uh, points? Okay, David Hilbert came up with an illustration to show that you can't have an actual concrete number of things. It's called Hilbert's Hotel. He says, imagine a hotel that has an infinite number of rooms, okay? And people start checking in. Well, you've got plenty of room. I mean, you have an infinite hotel. You've just opened it, so you start filling rooms, okay? Let's say an infinite number of people come, all right? Well, you've got plenty of room, all right? Now, let's suppose that somebody else comes to check in. Do you have room for them? Yeah, you just shift everybody down one room and the first room is open, so you can bring them in. Now, let's say that an infinite number of people again appear. We'll just move everybody that's in a room into an even number room. Now, all the odd rooms are open and you have room for an infinite number of people. Now, what's even weirder is that the number hasn't changed. Right. So now let's say that people start checking out. <laughs> so even if you had an infinite number of people check out, you could still have an infinite number of people left in the hotel and the number hasn't changed at all. And so whenever you start dealing with concrete infinites, you just end up in uh, these type of logical absurdities. Yeah. So yeah, even though between my fingers there's an infinite number of mathematical points, you can't fit an infinite number of paper in there no matter how thin it is. And so uh, you can't have a concrete infinite. As such, you can't have an infinite number of time an infinite amount of time, because today is the end point of all, of all time in the past. But to go backwards in time an infinite amount, where, where would again, how, how would we get to the end point? You can't get to an end point in an actual infinite set. It's kind of like being in a library and you're in the M section, uh, like uh, McMurray section, and you want to get to the G section to look at something by Gary. Well, you start walking backwards in the library, you never get out of the M section. No. You can't because the library is infinite. It, kind of the same problem. And so this right here all points to the beginning of the universe. And, you know, premise one seems to be good. You, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. 
as the nature of the case, this universe be, must be outside of space and time, is therefore spaceless, timeless, yeah. immaterial. And if you're gonna bring something in from, uh, create something from nothing, you're extremely powerful. So even, so just this argument gives us the very beginning of what we understand to mean a theistic God. Yeah, yeah, because the, the God, whatever created the universe looks a lot like the God of the Bible because like you say, he has to be outside of time, all powerful uh, person because he had to decide to bring about the universe, all that kind right. of good stuff. The next one, the fifth one, miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. All right, yeah, if God exists, miracles are possible. Main reason right. being is because biggest miracle has already happened, creation. Right. All right, so if you have that one, now you've got creation. All right, now miracles can be used to confirm a message from God because God can do it. Now, these miracles would be the fingerprint of God, you know, saying, putting uh, his authority, his stamp of approval on a particular message. Uh, he would have to do it by ways that uh, nobody else could. Parting of the Red Sea, bringing fire from heaven, floating axe heads, raising people from the dead. I mean, these are things that don't happen naturally. And so if somebody is making a truth claim and one of the, and they say, hey, guess what? Uh, something truly supernatural is going to happen to confirm my truth claim, and it does. Hey, wait a minute. You know, this right here is something we really should investigate as being actually a message from God. And so that's the value of it. Uh, and so that's how miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. Okay, the next one. Point six, the New Testament is historically reliable. Yeah, you could spend, oh man, we do need five shows to get through all this. Yeah, I know. Now, yeah, the New Testament is historically reliable. Uh, it goes through th really, uh, three lines of evidence. Number one, we have early testimony of, uh, from what we know the apostles, uh, disciples, and those from the time of Christ wrote. Uh, we have 5,700 Greek manuscripts that are all dated within just uh, 150 to 200 years after the events themselves, which whenever you're dealing with ancient manuscripts is an extremely small amount of time. I mean, the next closest is the Iliad, where we have 650 manuscripts, and they're separated by about 700 years to, from the time it was written to the earliest manuscript we have. New Testament, we even have a small manuscript that goes back to about 25 years after it was written. So from this, we can also, we can uh, figure out exactly what was written. Now, whether it's true or not is something completely different and that's something that we would need to investigate also. But we know what was written with 99.9% .9 accuracy. That other 0.1% doesn't affect any doctrine, no major teaching. And most of the uh, things that deal with errors are gonna be like spelling errors, word changes, for example, like saying Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus, yeah. uh, switching things around. Uh, of that nature. So we have what was written down. And even if we didn't even have the Greek New Testament, if we just had the writings of the early church fathers, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. And most of those are from third, third John. Yeah. So, I mean, you can get the bulk of the New Testament just from the church fathers, not without any Greek, yeah. uh, Greek uh, manuscripts. Well, well, Lanny, hard to believe, but we've come to Man. the end of the first show. So, wow. Of course, we, we're on point six. So needless to say, I'm gonna invite you back on to try to get through the rest All of right. the uh, 12 <laughs> points. Would, you, would that be agreeable with you? Oh, yes. Okay, Lanny, so thanks again, Lanny Wilson, coming on, talking about the 12 points to prove Christianity is true. Next time, we'll, do this, we'll finish it up. All right? All right, man. That ends this episode of Giving an Answer. Be sure to join me again next time. And until then, goodbye and God bless.
Mm-hmm.